Turn with me to Deuteronomy 23. Deuteronomy 23, and we'll begin in a few minutes in verse 19. Now, as we've made our way through a pretty fast pace through Deuteronomy, you've probably noticed that uh, trying to summarize or simply um, kind of uh, simplify Deuteronomy has not been easy. And, for example, uh, to try to put Deuteronomy or even all of uh, the, the Torah, the Pentateuch, into, for example, the form of a children's Bible, that wouldn't be easy at all. Generally speaking, children's Bibles tend to focus on the narrative portion of the Old Testament, the stories. Yeah, that's what kids kind of relate to. And the Pentateuch often gets reduced to this list. Creation, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the flood, the Tower of Babel, the Red Sea crossing, maybe Mount Sinai, and Israel receiving the law. And that's about it. But you don't get much beyond that. As a matter of fact, longtime Christians... I've observed, can often be intimidated or even disinterested in the law of God. Maybe they've been told wrongly that since we're not under the law of Moses as New Covenant Christians, that the law is irrelevant. Or maybe it just seems too culturally distant. I mean, why do I need to know that I'm not supposed to boil a baby goat in its mother's milk? I don't know how to apply that. But the fact is, is that the law of God is not a children's book. It is not easily digested. It is designed to be pondered, to be studied, to be examined, to be meditated upon. In fact, the writer of Psalm 119 gives us a flavor of how the faithful believer in God is to grapple with the law of God. Psalm 119, verse 11, he stores up the word of God in his heart. Verse 13, he recites the whole law aloud. Verse 15, he meditates on the precepts of God. Verse 18, he prays that he might see the wonders of the law. Verse 31, he clings to the law. Verse 52, he thinks on the law. Verse 54, he sings the law of God. Verse 89, he affirms that the law is eternal. Verse 96, he acknowledges that the law is vast. Verse 103, he tastes and eats the law. Verse 120, he trembles at the law. Verse 131, he pants and thirsts for the law. And in various verses, various times, he meditates on the law before dawn, at midnight, during the day, and in bedtime. And in fact, in verse 164, he says seven times every day he praises God for the law. And so, yes, our quick little survey through Deuteronomy may seem overwhelming. But what we are talking about here is the revelation of the very mind of God himself. And so it's worth working through and chewing on and tasting and eating and thirsting after this eternal, inerrant, authoritative, inspired law of God. One of my goals all through uh, preaching through the Pentateuch has been not just to teach you every detail, that's impossible in the amount of time we've taken, but to teach you to love the law and to understand how to apply it as New Covenant Christians. And I hope we'll see that tonight as well. Now, tonight we're finishing the major middle section of Deuteronomy that, far, that, that falls into the, the covenant stipulations, the specific stipulations. And it's the longest part, uh, chapter 12 through 26. It's the big section that says, here's how you deal with the law and here's how you obey the Lord. These are the detailed requirements that the great king, who is Yahweh, has lovingly placed upon the vassal nation of Israel that he's formed and he's rescued. And their covenant loyalty is now expressed in their obedience to these stipulations. 
And what we've seen in this large section from chapter 12, and we'll go all the way through 26 tonight, generally speaking, these specific stipulations follow the outline of the Ten Commandments, giving us universal, timely principles to live by. Now, we've gone through the first seven commandments in the past two messages, and tonight we'll finish this section that we've called the Covenant Salvation Life, and this is our third message in this part. And so we'll simply begin where we left off, the Eighth Commandment, we'll call the principle of ownership. The principle of ownership. What is the eighth commandment? Deuteronomy 5.19, you shall not steal. You shall not steal. Now, a foundation for God's promises to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant have to do with land. And in the land, each tribe was to be given an allotment. And within each tribe, individual clans and families were to be given their allotment. And so property ownership now becomes the very basis and the foundation for a God-honoring society. And property ownership says many, many things. Property ownership says we're home. Property ownership says we're at peace. Ownership says we've been given tangible gifts by God. Ownership says I can provide for my family for generations. Ownership says I can set down roots in the land of God's choosing. We already saw last time the seriousness of moving even a boundary marker because you're essentially trying to steal somebody's inheritance, steal somebody's land, trying to decrease another man's ability to make his fortune on his own land. And so the principle of ownership is very naturally related to the crime of theft. And the crime of theft is related to someone who does not care to live peacefully in society. Ultimately, thieves expect everyone else to create wealth and they just want to take it. And so we see the principle of ownership, of not stealing, lived out, first of all, in how Israelites were to treat one another financially. Chapter 23, verse 19. You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother, interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. What does that say? No interest loans. You know what that also says? It says in the nation of Israel, no such thing as banks. Because banks make money off the hardship of others. And so that wasn't going to be the case. In other words, one brother is helping another. And by the way, when you pair this up with the Sabbath year law, in which every seven years uh, loans are forgiven completely, what is this loan really? In all likelihood, it's a gift. And in fact, what it does is it protects the dignity of the poorer brother. The poorer brother doesn't go to his neighbor and say, could I have a gift of money? He says, may I borrow some money? And yet it can turn into a gift. It can turn into a gracious gracious gift in which he at least has the intention of returning that which was borrowed. And this is to promote love and unity within the people of God. On the other hand, verse 20, you may charge a foreigner interest, But you may not charge your brother interest that the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land that you're entering to take possession of it. What does this say? Making a fee of some sort for helping your brother in trouble is a form of theft. Taking his property because he's in need. Somebody from another nation wanders through and says, I need to borrow some money. Sure, charge him some interest because he's not your brother. He's not part of the community of faith. And then we see a warning to not steal from God. Verse 21. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. 
Here in the context of money and property, this vow is very likely a promise to give money or to make an extra sacrifice for some reason, maybe an act of gratitude to the Lord. Verses 22 and 23 make it clear that this isn't a required gift, but if you promise it, then it's sin to not fulfill that vow. It is stealing from God. And then look how God defines the difference between being neighborly and being a thief. Verse 24. If you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes, as many as you wish, but you shall not put any in your bag. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. What does this mean? Well, if you happen to be cutting through your neighbor's vineyard, you can eat as many grapes as you want, but you can't take a to-go bag. You can't say, hey, I think my family would enjoy these as well. And so there's a clear delineation. If you're walking through your neighbor's grain field, you can take some ears of grain that you can carry in your hand, but you can't bring harvest equipment in. You can't take a little for yourself. There's a difference between being neighborly and an attitude of entitlement that says what is yours is now mine. This is a person who believes that since his neighbor has been prosperous, he should get a piece of that prosperity to keep things fair. Can I put it this way? God is a fiscal conservative. No redistribution of wealth except to help the truly helpless in society. Now, still under the principle of ownership as related to living peacefully in a nation together without stealing from one another, we come to one of the most hotly debated passages in the Old Testament. Chapter 24, verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if she then finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. So what's the basic situation here? The basic situation is that the man takes a wife. He sends her away for whatever reason. It just says for some indecency. She marries another And for some reason, that marriage ends, either through divorce or through the death of that husband. The first man cannot take her back. That's what this law is about. Now, why is this hotly debated? Well, this is the centerpiece on the Old Testament discussion around divorce. And in fact, it was reaffirmed by Jesus in Matthew 19. Uh, Some of you were here when I preached through a theology of marriage, divorce, and remarriage a couple of years ago. But many of you were not. This is a massively important text, and I've done a lot of study on it, so if, if you'll let me, I want to just slow down for a moment and review some of the facts about this text, and then I'll show you how this fits in with the principle of ownership. Uh, let me just go through kind of three or four things. I want to give you an overview of the text, what some indecency means. I want to talk about the law here and then kind of compare uh, divorce to the death penalty because there's a definite comparison here. But we'll just take kind of a a sidetrack here for a moment, and then I'll tell you how this uh, fits in with the property, uh, the principle of ownership, rather, and not stealing. First of all, what about this text itself? These four verses form a large if-then statement. And it's important to note this. No Old Testament passage, including this one, gives specific permission to divorce as a law. 
The permission here is implied. Uh, John MacArthur wrote extensively on this passage and he writes this, if the Israelites so abused implied permission for divorce, how much more would they have abused explicit permission? And so it's, it's not a law that explains permissible grounds for divorce. It simply describes the behavior of an ungodly man who puts his wife away in divorce. It was never, ever intended to be a license for divorce for any reason. That's the way the Pharisees were interpreting it. And Jesus explained that they were wrong. And so what is Moses doing here? Well, what he's doing is describing the sin of a, of a hard-hearted divorce in order to regulate what happened after the divorce. And the assumption is that these sinful divorces were actually going to happen. The only actual legislation, the only actual law in these verses is a prohibition against the divorced man from remarrying his former wife if she became available once again. Now, there's a debate as to why a husband would want his wife back after she had remarried and was now available again. There's a couple of theories. Uh, The first one is called the financial theory, that the wife may have become wealthy in her second marriage and kept that wealth. And so the first husband might want her back. That's probably unlikely, though, because a woman who is now independently wealthy is not likely to go back to the man who got rid of her. The other major theory is it is simply to reassert control over her that he is a controlling, difficult, abusive, arrogant man, and this is to protect her. It is a protection for her. All in all, though, the reason isn't given, except that it's some sort of protection for the woman. The certificate of divorce did give her a certain protection under the law that she was no longer obligated to this man. Now, what's the reason for the law? Well, Jesus gave the reason, Matthew 19, 8. He said it's because of the the hardness of of your hearts of stubborn men. And what it did was it was designed to avoid needlessly preserving a cruel and heartless marriage. But what is this little phrase here? He has found some indecency in her. This was hotly debated even in Jesus' day. And this is really the crux of the argument that that the Pharisees would try to draw, draw Jesus into in Matthew 19. The phrase some uncleanness literally means the uncleanness of a thing. It's just a a catchphrase that means anything that's unclean. The first word alone in Hebrew means nakedness or shame, something indecent, something impure. It's the same word that was used when Noah was drunk and naked in Genesis 9.22. So this whole phrase, some indecency, theoretically could refer to adultery. But I would say almost certainly it doesn't refer to adultery because just two chapters earlier in Deuteronomy 22 we saw that the death penalty was prescribed for adultery. More likely, it could be the description of maybe a habitually flirtatious woman, such as the Proverbs 5 woman that is to be watched out for. Some indecency, like a, a true and verifiable sexual or other type of offense by the wife, which is not necessarily full adultery. And there's a couple of reasons for this. First of all, Moses doesn't condemn the woman's second marriage, so we can't say with certainty that this is some sort of gross immorality. And the second reason is that when Jesus interprets Deuteronomy 24 and Matthew 19, his focus is not on whatever the offense of the wife is. His focus is on the wickedness of the hard-hearted husband sending his wife away. So the focus really is on the man. The nature of some indecency has that perhaps uh, it's a it's a conclusion that for some reason the husband chose to send the wife away 
And as Jesus would point out in Matthew 19, this was not very often a righteous reason. It was just an excuse that the man used, but it was a way for this marriage to not continue to torture a woman who had really essentially no rights in a sinful society. This isn't punishment of a wife who may have done something, but really for the freeing of the wife, for the hard-hearted husband to be able to say, you've committed some indecency, you're thereby free to go from a terrible marriage. But why is this law here? What's, what's the nature of this law? Toleration of divorce, I think, is the strongest thing we could say about this law. It wasn't an indication that God was approving a man's right to put his wife away for any reason. God's standard for marriage has always been that it's a lifelong covenant with one man and one woman. But this law was aimed simply at protecting societally the the more vulnerable and maybe the less guilty and the more innocent spouse from a, a callous or abusive situation. It allowed for divorce as a mercy to the oppressed. Again, confirmed by Jesus' focus as the husband being the real culprit in the situation. The law didn't require the divorcing husband to prove that he had a valid reason for divorce. It was entirely his judgment call. And neither did the law subject either husband or wife to any sort of discipline from the community of faith. And so while the law concerning the specific situation of remarrying after divorce is clear, the whole text is pointedly unclear about legitimate grounds for divorce. And so I think the best that we can say is that in general... Uh, This is just general in nature. It doesn't condone easy divorce, but it doesn't make divorce impossible either. And in fact, it is in many ways a great mercy. So I want to talk to you about divorce versus the death penalty. Because even if the law ultimately is not speaking of adultery or divorce, there is a beauty to this if you look for it. What it means is that the death penalty is officially required for adultery. Using Deuteronomy 24, a husband, though, could be merciful to a wife who had committed adultery. In essence, God allowed divorce to replace the death penalty. Can we think of an instance in the New Testament when a husband truly believed his wife or his wife-to-be had committed adultery and he could have called for the death penalty but instead used this law to provide mercy to her? It was Joseph with Mary. He intended to put her away meaning to quietly divorce her as a mercy. MacArthur says this, The answer may be that Israel had so immersed herself in immorality that there was not sufficient desire for righteousness left in the people to carry out executions for that offense. Ultimately, God in his mercy chose himself not to enforce the death penalty. Divorce became the divine alternative tolerated only because of the hardness of the human heart. In other words, even for the unrepentant adulterer, God gave life and the chance for later repentance, divorce as a mercy from God. Now, you might ask, what has this got to do with the principle of property, of not stealing? Well, I think there's a couple of clear applications here. First of all, it seems that this concession is a preventative to a man treating his wife as if she is property. People were not to be property, particularly in a marriage. And the man who mistreats his wife and falsely accuses her, he he then can't maintain control over her. He can't maintain that that grasp on her. But look at the bigger context. There's a clue here at the very end of those four verses. The point of this law is to not defile what? The land. The land that God has given as an inheritance. Look at the end of verse 4. 
And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. In other words, receiving the gift of property of the land means living righteously and living holy lives on that land, living in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. They're stewards of what God has given. And not only did he expect you to be a hard worker and expect you to be productive on the land that he'd given you, he expected you to treat your wife correctly. He expected you to treat your husband correctly, to treat your children correctly. And so there's a sense here in which If a a man continued in in a horrible marriage, he is, in essence, stealing a a woman's life, which was not okay to do. And so you have this connection to not stealing what isn't yours, not taking the, the happiness and the joy that the husband was supposed to provide for his wife. And so several applications there, I think, fit well into that commandment. Now, we're going to go a little faster now. Remembering that children were your financial future in this situation, in this culture. So to not steal a man's future, so to speak, look at chapter 24, verse 5. To not steal his future. When a man is newly married, he shall not go out with the army or be liable for any other public duty. He shall be free at home one year to be happy with his wife whom he has taken. I've heard this verse preached a few times. And it's always kind of preached with a chuckle and a grin and a wink that, uh, that you don't send a man off to war who hasn't been on his honeymoon for very long. And it's kind of focused on the man. That misses the point completely and utterly. This is not a mercy to the man. I don't think God is saying to young manly men in Israel, oh, I'm sorry. I know that the enemy is at the gates right now, but you go off on your honeymoon and that's fine. It has nothing to do with him. This has to do with being merciful to his wife. She has time as a new bride to conceive and to bear a child who would be her future hope even if her husband is killed in battle. And so this was a hope for her. This was to not steal her future, to to not have her be an 18-year-old widow with no hope. Once again, we see the admonition to be kind, to be neighborly. Verse 6, no one shall take a mill or an upper millstone in pledge for that would be taking a life in pledge. In other words, you don't take the means by which a man can make his living from him. You don't take it as a pledge, as a, as a collateral. And what does God think of human trafficking, of kidnappers, people who steal people? They are to die. Verse 7, if a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief must die. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Now, if we look at the big picture going all the way back to chapter 23, verse 19, all the way through 24, verse 7, do you see the progression, this ever-increasing intensity? It, It starts with, don't steal from your brother by charging interest to him. And there's not really a penalty attached to that. It's just, don't do it. Then it goes to, don't steal from God by not fulfilling your giving vow. Don't steal crops from your neighbor. Don't steal the reasonable life of a woman in a torturous marriage. Don't steal a family's future for their children. Don't steal a man's ability to make a living. And finally, don't steal people themselves. And so it goes from charging interest all the way to human trafficking. The covenant salvation life that we live as new covenant believers in Christ, it's characterized by not stealing 
And you might think, oh, no Christian would ever steal. That's really the epitome of an unbeliever. We've dealt with stealing in this church. We've had to deal with it before. The New Testament has very clear warnings to the church of Jesus Christ. Romans 2.21, you who preach against stealing, do you steal? Ephesians 4.28, let the thief no longer steal. 1 Peter 4.15 warns, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief. And in fact, the one who continues to steal is called in the New Testament a swindler. And what happens to them? Both 1 Corinthians 5 and 6 tell us that swindlers have no place in the kingdom of God. They're showing themselves ultimately to be unregenerate. But stealing involves so much more than simply taking a physical object that belongs to another. You can steal possessions of another by being lazy such that they have to support or help you because of your own lack of planning or responsibility. You're stealing their time because they had to take time to earn the money to give to you because you wouldn't do it. You can steal time from others by wasting it. You can steal time from others by not respecting other people's time or being overly demanding of other people's time. You can steal peace of mind from others by being addicted to uh, drama and difficulty and being that person who stirs up trouble all the time. You can steal someone's reputation through gossip and slander and maligning them to others. It's what Ephesians 4 calls corrupting talk. That is a horrible, horrible feeling, isn't it? To know that your reputation has been tarnished by what others have said. You can steal from the Lord by being capable of giving financially yet withholding out of greed rather than because of a genuine need. And you can, in fact, steal from the church by being so inconsistent in your fellowship and in your attendance that it discourages others and places a damper on the body of Christ. And so at the heart of covenant salvation life is the principle of property. You shall not steal. You shall not take that which is not yours. And so it's right at the heart of our lives as Christians as well. And that brings us to a ninth principle. We'll call this one the principle of brotherly love. It's very similar. The principle of brotherly love and the ninth commandment upon which this section is based. Deuteronomy 5.20, the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. To bear false witness is to, to lie about another. This indicates hatred. It indicates loathing. To misrepresent someone is to perform an act of revulsion toward another person. It is a terrible thing to do. In the church of Jesus Christ, we have always struggled with this around the world, that some in the church use this as a form of power and control, that if I can negatively impact what others think of you, then I have some sort of control over you. This is absolutely a heinous way to behave, and it's indicative potentially of someone who's not truly regenerate. If that wasn't a problem in the church, why are there so many admonitions in the New Testament against this? Now, to start off with, the principle of brotherly love is shown in a very practical way how you treat someone with a leprous disease, some sort of skin disease. Verses 8 and 9 of chapter 24. Take care in case of leprous disease to be very careful to do according to all that the Levitical priest shall direct you. As I commanded them, so you shall be careful to do. Remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam on the way as you came out of Egypt. And so we get a, a double purpose here, both of them linked to brotherly love. First of all, the, the sick are to be treated with kindness and care and dignity as prescribed by the law. There's to be love here. 
But then you get this odd little reminder. Remember what the Lord did to Miriam. What happened to Miriam? This was Moses' sister. And you remember that when she spoke against the leadership of Israel, against Moses, God struck her with leprosy. To speak evil against legitimate leadership was a lack of brotherly love. It was a challenge to the sovereignty of God who had placed that leadership. And then the law addresses preserving the dignity of your fellow brothers. Verses 10 and 11 is, is so poignant and so kind. These two verses explain that if you're loaning your brother something, some money or, or some goods, and you take a pledge, collateral, another piece of property as payment, don't go into the house of your brother to collect the pledge in front of his family. Don't go inside in the front of his children, in front of his wife, take his cloak or take this piece of property as collateral. Have a private meeting outside and do it quietly to preserve his dignity. Verses 12 and 13 explains that if the pledge is coming from a poor man who gives you his only cloak, his only coat as a pledge, you show mercy and you give it back to him before sunset so that he won't be cold at night. What is this like? If you're parents, you've probably done this with your children. You owe me a dollar and you make him pay you. And then if you're merciful, you say, I'm going to give you the dollar back now because I love you, but you paid your debt. And so it's, it's just merciful. It's kind. It's gracious. He gets the coat back before sunset so he doesn't get cold at night. Verses 14 and 15. If you hire a day laborer, make sure to pay him the same day. Why? So he can buy food for his family. He's not working to pad his IRA. He's working to have dinner. Verse 16, again, brotherly love. There's no surrogate punishment. Only the sinner is responsible for his own sin. No family member can take the death penalty for someone else's sin. This was to encourage societal responsibility. Verses 17 and 18, no taking advantage of the more helpless in society, such as the foreigner or the orphan or the widow. And verses 19 through 22 when you harvest a field or an orchard, you only go over it once. And whatever is left is free for the foreign traveler and for the orphan and for the widow. We see an example of this blessing in the book of Ruth, of course, when she goes and gleans in the fields. And get this, even in the punishment of a criminal offense, the dignity of the guilty party was to be guarded. Chapter 25, verses 1 through 3, explains that if a man is condemned to be beaten... The limit is 40 lashes. And to go beyond that now is just to degrade the man beyond what is reasonable. A little side note here. The criminal justice system of Israel had two very clear principles, which we've seen in past messages. First of all, a heinous act of sin which soiled the whole nation. Things like adultery, rebellion of an older child, murder, idolatry. This was to be punishable by death. And as chapter 22 says multiple times, so you shall purge the evil from Israel. Chapter 24 says it multiple times as well. That's the first principle. Something heinous like that, you get rid of the person and that gets rid of the crime. But a serious offense, which required restitution or punishment, was to be in such a way to restore a brother back to society. This is the second principle. Whether working for the family from which he stole or receiving lashes yet preserving his dignity. You know something they didn't have in their criminal justice system. They didn't have prisons. Because prisons cause hopelessness in those that are there. 
If somebody absolutely cannot function in society because they're, they're, we would call psychopathic or we would call so utterly selfish that they can't function, the cure for that was to purge them from society. It was the death penalty. But if somebody was just wayward and they needed help and they, they were able to provide restoration for their crimes and it was allowed by the law, they were, the goal was to inculcate them back into society to give them grace and mercy. It's a, it's a marvelous system. Does brotherly love only include the people? No. Even the animals were to be treated with dignity. Chapter 25, verse 4, You shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain, that it was cruel to put that animal so close to food, yet keep it from eating while it worked. I find it interesting that this is the exact verse that the Apostle Paul used to say, pay your pastors. I don't know why he thought we were an ox. Um, but it's the same idea. The offering plate's going by. I can't pay my electric bill. And nope, you can't have any of that. Okay. And so it's to be a society based in love, based in care for one another. What is at the heart of this? The heart of this brotherly love, this humility toward one another is based in a humble remembrance of the past. Let me show you. Back in chapter 24, verse 9, remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam on the way as you came out of Egypt. Chapter 24, verse 18, but you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. In chapter 24, verse 22, the last verse you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. This is exactly the same basis, the same foundation for brotherly love in the church. Did you know that? To remember God's forgiveness. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. To remember not only God's forgiveness, but to remember God's grace. Ephesians 2.13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Not only to remember God's forgiveness, to remember God's grace, but to remember God's love. John 13, 34, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, so also you are to love one another. The principle of brotherly love, of treating one another with grace and kindness and mercy. And you know, out of all the scenes we've described one that really touches my own heart is thinking about the brother coming to someone who is giving him a pledge and giving him collateral and he takes off his only coat, probably the most valuable possession he had. And he said, I, I'm, I'm giving this to you and as soon as I pay you back, you can give it back to me. And this scene, and, and you, you, could, you could picture it's three o'clock in the afternoon and the sun is going down in three or four hours and the man leaves with the cloak and an hour later he comes back and knocks on the door and, and says, I'm giving your cloak back. It's going to be cold tonight. What does that do in a society? It makes a society filled with love and kindness and brotherly affection for one another. Well, one more principle. The 10th principle, the principle of avoiding covetousness. The principle of avoiding covetousness. Based on... On the 10th commandment, Deuteronomy 5.21, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. What does coveting speak of? 
Coveting speaks of a sinful internal desire to have something that doesn't belong to you. It's often followed by an action to get that thing. Now, we want to be very clear about this. Coveting is not merely a desire for something. A desire for something can drive you to hard work and responsibility and getting a job. That's okay. Coveting is desiring to have something that someone else has instead of them, to take it from them. Coveting can come in the form of wishing that someone else didn't have something because you think they don't deserve it. It is a heart issue. Marxist ideologies, things like social justice, reparations, ideas, these are simply complex form of complex forms of coveting, which are then acted upon by stealing. That's all it is. So how is the principle of avoiding covetousness worked out in the life of Israel? Well, the first instance we see of coveting is that of wanting a higher place in society of being above your brothers, quite literally in this case, being above your own brothers. And one of the ways you could achieve a higher recognition, a higher place in society, more recognition, more fame, as it were, was to make certain that your own brothers were unknown. Chapter 25, verses 5 through 10, gives the unique law known as the law of leveret marriage. It's from the Latin word lever, which means brother-in-law. And this law says that if a man died without children, his brother was to conceive a son in his brother's widow so that his brother's name and his brother's property would stay in the brother's family. Now, I know to us this seems very unusual and this is something we don't practice, but to do less than this was to say, I want my brother's family's line to end. Or let me put it to you this way. I don't want my brother's family to partake in the blessing of the covenant of Abraham. I don't want them to have that. And in fact, if a man refused to perform this duty, look with me at chapter 25, verse 8. Then the elders of a city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. And we go, what is that about? What do you do with your sandals? You walked on land that you own. And so by going to her brother-in-law and pulling his sandal off, she's saying, you will never have a part in this, in, in my family. You will never have a part. You could have helped. You could have saved your brother's family by giving me a son. But now I'm a helpless widow. Whatever happens to me, if I ever prosper, if God ever blesses me, I take off the ability. You will never have a part in this, ever. It was a big, big deal. And so the one who thought he might get the whole estate if he blotted out his, father, his, his uh, brother's family name, now he gets nothing. Because what is the intention? Well, she's just a widow. Whatever my brother has, I'm going to take it. He takes off the sandal. She takes off the sandal in front of the elders and says, not on my watch, not as long as I live. Similarly, in another law that we hesitate to even read out loud, verses 11 and 12 says, if a wife interferes with a fight between her husband and another man and grabs the other man by his genitalia, what is the judgment? Her hand is to be cut off. Now, why so severe? This is the only law in all of the 
Old Testament that requires mutilation as punishment. It's obviously meant to serve as a very stern warning. I would imagine mothers reading this law to their daughters and their daughters going, okay, I'm not ever going to do that. But the severity here isn't linked to just the interference. It's not linked to humiliation. It's not just some self-defense technique. What it was is considered to be a malicious act of preventing a man from ever having children. And if you keep a man from having children by permanent injury to his ability to have children, what you're essentially trying to do is to murder a man's future family. To say, you will never have children. You will never take part in the covenant promises given to Abraham. I don't want you to be part of this nation. And so it was in essence an attempt to take away his part in Israel's inheritance, his part in God's promises to Israel. It was her way of saying, I will have all those things, but you will not. So what's the best thing to do? Let the boys fight it out behind the tent and not worry about it. Verses 13 and 14 of chapter 25, you were to be honest and fair in business dealings, using proper weights to weigh out grain or other goods sold by weight or by measure. In other words, you weren't to have two different versions of the same weight. Now, what what is this talking about? Well, you would have these weights that you carried around maybe in a bag and you place them on a simple balance scale. And somebody was selling you something or you're purchasing something or you're selling something as well. You simply balance that scale until until it balanced and you knew how much product there was. And so if you used a larger weight that was dishonest, you could buy more for less money. And if you use the smaller weight, you could sell less for more money. And Moses says, don't do that. Don't do that to your brother. And then God gives an object lesson of what covetousness will get you. He commands in verses 17 through 19 that the Amalekite people are to be completely blotted out such that nobody even remembers them anymore. Why is that? When Israel was leaving Egypt, Amalek perpetrated an unprovoked attack on Israel attacking the the elderly and the weak. They were hostile for no reason whatsoever. Why? Because they were covetousness. They didn't like this new nation coming through their land. And finally, in chapter 26, the principle of avoiding covetousness is demonstrated in the detailed laws concerning the tithes and then the offerings given in the first fruits of the harvest. And the lesson here is that everything that Israel had and everything they would have was because of God. In other words, just like Psalm 24 tells us, Everything belongs to God. He owns it all already. The tithe, giving of the tenth, and the specific laws here you can read for yourselves, this was a way to support the theocratic governing system. And the offerings were acts of thankfulness above and beyond the tithe. You were giving to the Lord. You were demonstrating your acknowledgement that, as uh, James chapter 1 says, every good and perfect gift is from above, from heaven, from God. And so to withhold giving... To withhold what already belonged to God was to covet these things for yourself. Malachi chapter 3, God condemns Israel for failing in this. And by doing so, he says, you're robbing God. Now, I think we all understand the the concept of covetousness. And so I want to finish our time by talking about how is covetousness a temptation for us as new covenant believers in Christ? Because we we live in a different context, a different culture. The New Testament, though, gives further revelation which equates covetousness, listen carefully, 
equates covetousness with idolatry. The New Testament is starkly, deadly serious about this. To want what others have is always a means of trying to get happiness and joy outside of Christ. Therefore, it is idolatry. Colossians 3, 5 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Covetousness causes quarrels and and fights. James 4, 2, You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. In other words, instead of wanting what someone else has, Ask God to help you. Turn to God, not turn to others. Turn to the Lord. How does covetousness cause fighting and quarreling? You wouldn't fight if you didn't want something that was worth sinning. It's really that simple. Worth sinning to get in your mind. If you don't covet anything, you're not going to fight anybody for it because you don't want anything. In fact, covetousness is so bad that Paul says it shouldn't even be seen in the church. Ephesians 5.3, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. We could make the argument, and I don't have time to do this tonight, but we could make the argument that the other nine commandments are all forms of coveting. You shall not steal. You shall not want what somebody else has. Usually you steal something because you wanted it first in your mind and in your heart. You shall not commit adultery. You want somebody else's spouse. In fact, somebody who is consistently covetousness should be warned that in fact they may not be regenerate. They may not be in Christ. Why is this? Because they continue worshiping idols of their own making without change, without repentance. Ephesians 5, 5 You may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Covetous people can't share. They certainly can't let others have joy in their possessions or their situations or their relationships. By the way, Romans 12 gives us a a, a good uh, antidote against covetousness. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Covetousness is much more twisted and diabolical than simply saying, that guy has a nice house and I want it. There are many ways we can be tempted to covet. Now, I want to give you a few examples and and have us be warned by this long section in Deuteronomy. Here's some examples of things we may be tempted to covet. You might covet a relationship. You might covet a relationship thinking that another woman's husband would be so much better for you, thinking that another man's wife would be so much more agreeable, so much more exciting to live with. Coveting a relationship can even mean, in its most devilish form, trying to make certain that no one else has a relationship with the person that you want to have a relationship with. We've seen this happen in the church. To be honest with you, with the exception of the husband-wife relationship, I'm not a big fan of the idea of best friends. Why is that? Because it can form be a form of covetousness that no one else gets to be close and cherished except this one person. The most wicked form of coveting a relationship is to try to malign others that someone is close to so that you can have that person all to yourself. This is absolutely heinous. You might covet a relationship so that requires thought and prayer for us. You might be tempted to covet getting your way continually. 
You might be tempted to covet getting your way, thinking that you can only be happy if things are always done your way. That is an idol. And the really wicked form of this occurs when you make certain the people around you suffer when you don't get your way. To teach them that giving in to you is easier than the emotional fallout of disagreeing with you. I've seen this in marriage counseling. I've asked husbands who become very, very passive. I've said, when do you, do you ever tell your wife, no, we're not going to do that even though you want to? And I've seen men like lean back so their wife can't see him going, no, 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 don't, don't go there because he knows what's going to happen. And this goes both ways, both genders. You might be tempted to covet being the center of attention. Being the center of attention, one of my pastoral classes and pastoral ministry classes in seminary, the professor who'd been a lifetime pastor, he warned of what he called the hub of the wheel. The hub of the wheel, he said, are the people in the church to whom everybody always looks, everybody bows and scrapes. They will often be the biggest difficulties because they might do anything to keep that attention, including maligning those who don't give them that attention. And he warned us, be careful that you might covet being the center of attention. I think the most effective Christians are the ones who can serve the Lord and not care who knows about it. And of course, this is the most obvious one that's possible to covet wealth. It's been said, woe to the man who makes great wealth and yet he keeps it all for himself. There is a green idol in that man's house. And it's amazing to me that a man or a woman can have tremendous resources and yet desperately grasp for more and not let go of a single penny. Amazing that that happens. Anything, anything you deeply yearn for which you believe will make you happy or content outside of God himself becomes an issue of covetousness and personal idolatry. And this is a battle every one of us will have to face. And every one of us has, has to fight. I find it pretty interesting that the Ten Commandments begins with, you shall have no other gods before me. And it ends with no coveting. In other words, no idolatry. In other words, no other gods before me. The Ten Commandments are bookended by no other gods. The lifestyle of coveting has tragic consequences, not just for that person, but for so many people all around him, all around her. It's a sad and tragic way to live that often leaves a trail of relationship destruction behind that person. It's a silent admission that something other than God is necessary for happiness and joy. It's a never-ending quest for, for temporary, temporal fulfillment. If only I had a better job, if only I had a better spouse, if only I had more money, if only I had a better church. So what do we do instead? Well, instead, Philippians 4, beginning in verse 11, the Apostle Paul said, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I love that phrase, that I've learned how to face having more than I need. Learning how to face plenty and hunger. You know, in the ministry over the years, I have seen precious believers with almost nothing, with very few physical possessions or, or health issues or disappointments in relationships. I've seen them live with such trust and joy and contentment. You know why they're able to do that? Because desire for those things never became an idol. It never became something they had to have. 
And on the other hand, I've seen professing believers with everything at their fingertips, absolute blessing in every area of their lives, live in misery and sin and rebellion because whatever idols they set up were not being achieved. They couldn't ever get enough. The key to contentment is not to have what you want. The key to contentment is to want what you have. And just let that be enough. Contentment doesn't mean, of course, that emotional agony and pain and anguish aren't part of the equation. Of course we're hurt when we're disappointed. You go for a promotion five times and you get turned down every time. You, you don't skip home and say, I think let's celebrate. It hurts. Paul himself said in a transparent moment in 2 Corinthians eleven eight that he felt pressure every single day because of his anxiety for the church. The word for anxiety means to be anxious. Ironic from the man who wrote, do not be anxious about anything. But the agony or the pain or the anguish are acceptable because God is still sovereign. In fact, let me put this in gospel terms. And you all, you'll understand this. Jesus said in Mark 8, 34, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Deny himself is a phrase that means disown yourself as being important. That if you don't want anything, you don't need anything. And to take up his cross. I, I know very often we use this as a metaphor. Well, you know, my, my child is difficult, so I'm taking up my cross. Or my parents are difficult, so I'm taking up my cross. That's not what Jesus was talking about. That phrase, take up your cross, was not used metaphorically. It only meant one thing to the New Testament audience. It meant you're on the path to death. Die to yourself. And then you follow Christ. You follow him and him alone. That's the essence of the gospel. You follow Christ at all costs Everything else is an idol. Everything else is an idol, and you lay them down. You want to be a happy Christian that gets rid of covetousness? The Apostle John ends his first epistle with a reference to the gospel of Christ and the outworking of the gospel by avoiding covetousness. Here it is, the key to happiness, the gospel and avoid covetousness. He says, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true. In his son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. And then he ends, First John, by saying, little children, keep yourself from what? Idols. There's happiness in the Lord. You look to Christ, you're thankful for the gospel and you get rid of covetousness. Get rid of idols. Anything that you think you have to have, you don't have to have it. We've sung this today already. All I have is Christ. And you are said to be in Christ. You possess him as it were. He is your savior. You'll never have to covet that. Well, this has been a great section. These three times here through the center section of Deuteronomy. Next time when we're in Deuteronomy, we'll move on to the next part. A little bit different, blessings and curses. And I think you'll enjoy that. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this rich, rich Lord's Day. We started together in Sunday school, beginning to turn our hearts and minds toward the living God, remembering Christ. We worshiped together this morning in our formal act of worship. We, we gave to you of our time and we sang the songs of our faith and we heard the word of God and we most importantly, partook of the Lord's table together, remembering the body and blood of Christ. 
And then this evening, Lord, we have seen two precious testimonies of yet more kingdom citizens brought into the glorious kingdom of our Savior. And we have seen now that we must desire, we must yearn to be those that demonstrate brotherly love, those that are avoiding covetousness, those that are living in a way that is pleasing to you, not to gain our salvation, but because Christ has already gained our salvation for us. But we would desire, Lord, to be new covenant believers who love you with our obedient lives. Lord, I pray that the words that were spoken tonight would deeply impact our hearts, that we would not forget them quickly, and that we would live in a way that is pleasing to you, that we would walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, and that we would obey Christ out of our yearning to love him and to please him. And it is in his name we pray, amen.